You are listening to Muslim in Moderation, discussions on minority culture, identity and politics with Ali Ahmed. The eyes of the whole world were watching as the 2020 US elections were fought, first in the media, then at the ballot box, and finally in the courts. When the dust finally settled, Donald Trump will not have a second term of office, and Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. This was a particularly important election for American Muslims. The Trump presidency amplified Islamophobia and deepened divisions in civil society. But many Muslims aligned with Republican social values and fiscal policy. So how did American Muslims vote in the election? How did Muslim candidates do? And what will happen when Joe Biden takes over the White House? Episode 14 of the podcast features Robert McCaw, Government Affairs Department Director at the Council for American Islamic Relations. We take a closer look into the 2020 U.S. elections and beyond. In general, how do you think the U.S. election went for American Muslims? I think a lot of Muslims were hopeful for a change after four years of some pretty tough anti-Muslim rhetoric from Donald Trump. I think this was an excellent election for American Muslims. They were very civically engaged from the very beginning in the primaries. They were active in pushing their issues and concerns with candidates at the local state and federal level, and they turned out in great numbers, breaking barriers. Muslim candidates were running for office at record highs, and you overall saw an electric energy in the community that was engaging them, and they were a part of this election cycle and process. And when you look at states like Michigan, where it came down to the wire, and there's such a large Muslim community there, there's a story to be told about how Muslims can tip the results of elections, national elections in the United States. Definitely. And American Muslims had actually success in the elections itself. You know, there were Ihan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Andre Carson all won seats in Congress. A number of other Muslims won in state-level elections. So how pleased are you with that aspect of the election? Kerry was very pleased. American Muslims are definitely breaking barriers in American politics. We recorded 168 candidates that ran for office in the 2020 election cycle in 28 states. 60 of those candidates won their office they were running for. You know, in comparison to other years, 49 Muslim candidates were elected to public office in 2019 and 57 back in 2018, which was the previous high mark in our record. Things went very well for Muslims running for office. And we actually have a report coming out next Tuesday where we'll highlight some of these numbers even more so. But, you know, looking just at the primaries, where our first two Muslim elected women members of Congress, in their primaries, because the general election, it was already sealed the Democratic candidate was going to win. In their primaries, Rashida Tlaib won 66% of the vote against her opponent, Brenda Jones, who had 33%. Ilhan Omar beat her opponent by a margin of 28,000 votes, winning 57% of the primary vote when it was called. And those two candidates, they were attacked systematically within the Democratic Party and outside the Democratic Party for really voicing advocacy issues and concerns of the Muslim community that really hadn't been heard in Congress before. And the fact that they were able to overcome primary challenges from within the party really shows that Muslim candidates can thrive in American politics, they can voice the concerns of the Muslim community, and that they can also really be good civil servants that are protecting the rights of all their constituents, regardless of race or religion, 
and that they'll earn their trust of the constituents to be their voice in Congress, regardless of religion. I definitely agree that having that representation there within the seats of power is crucial. I think having the electorate is is one thing, but when you can actually have your representatives there in those meetings, expressing those views and not being afraid to express those views, I think that part is is crucial. When you're breaking glass ceilings, some you know shards are going to fall. Uh, they definitely got attacked for voicing those Muslim concerns, but they stood the test. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very strong representatives. Let's talk about the way that Muslims voted uh, in addition to their participation. There are around 3.45 million Muslims in the U.S., and it was reported that around 65 to 69% of Muslims voted for Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. What do you make of that figure? Were more Muslims mobilized? And is the split of votes typical or is this particular to an anti-Trump movement? Happy to answer that question. I jump back for a second. CARE, using a database of 40,000 common Muslim names, were able to identify at least 1 million registered Muslim voters in the United States and other Muslim advocacy organizations using similar name algorithms were able to get similar results. So I actually think the overall population of Muslims in the United States is much higher. If there's a million Muslim voters, there could be anywhere between six to eight million Muslims in the United States. Now, when we look at how those Muslims turned out to vote, yeah, CARES figures showed 69% of registered Muslim voters in our exit poll saying that they voted for Joe Biden. We saw another 17% saying they voted for Trump, 11% saying that they didn't want to disclose who they voted for, which made us think they were shy Trump voters, at least some of them pushing up actual American Muslim community support for Trump in the ballot box, maybe up to 25%. Those numbers actually make a lot of sense when you kind of know the history of voting patterns in the United States. In 2016, 74% voted for Hillary Clinton. Going back to 2012, and this was more of a high, 85% of Muslim voters picked President Barack Obama. We continue to see in polling anywhere between 15, 20% of Muslims vocally identify as being Republican or voting for Republican candidates. Those voting margins, they sound right. Back in 2000, somewhere between 40 or 50% of Muslims actually voted Republican. But just because of intense anti-Muslim rhetoric from Republican Party officials candidates, those that caucus with the party or vote for them. We've seen a decline in Muslim voters for the Republican Party, but it really, it leveled out about in 2012, where that 60 to 70% margin are voting for Democratic candidates, that 15 to 20% margin are voting for Republican candidates. Now, we also saw a really good turnout within the Muslim community. So CARES exit poll, uh, which I conducted the night of the election, we were able to contact 844 Muslim households, we saw that 84% reported that they had voted in the election. Now, is it actually 84? It could be, but there's always the bias that people who pick up the phone and answer are maybe more likely to have voted versus their peers that didn't. So that number could be in the 70s percent. But if 70% of registered Muslim voters turned out, that's still a higher benchmark than in previous elections. And a number that we're happy with because it shows growth in Muslim voter participation. 
Yeah, I think the, the growth in the Muslim voter participation and I think the participation in the election generally is key because you would hope that people who voted would stay engaged longer term. But one other thing I was wondering about was there were some reports suggesting that there was a split between how Black American Muslims voted and how other Muslims voted in the election. Non-Black Muslim voters actually tilted slightly Republican. And some of the reasons why this may have happened are the alignment with conservative social values, but also just the allure of tax cuts and economic policies. There was also a view that the state of Muslim countries under Trump was actually better. I mean, there was this general America first idea and American pulling out of Afghanistan and some of the other Muslim countries, less activists politically. And also overall concern that, you know, during the Obama era, there were quite a few issues with drone strikes that people suffered from in foreign countries. So what do you think about that particular split? Do you think that's accurate? And what do you think it says about the split within the Muslim community in America? So in not this poll for our exit poll, did we ask about race, but usually when polling is done of the Muslim community, sometimes it skews less African-American than the general makeup of the country. And that's because if you're a black convert, you might not have a Muslim name. It's very hard to identify you. Pew does general polls across the U.S. where they then find out if someone identifies as Muslim. But still, I believe that Muslims as respondents to surveys are kind of like Trump voters. They're out there. When you try to poll them, you always don't get the best responses. In CARE's own survey work, we're planning in the future to figure out how can we correctly weight the responses of African-American survey respondents to have better representation just in our own surveys alone. But we have done some general analysis of that issue, the divide between African-American voters and maybe Arab or South Asian Muslim voters. And it lines up really with the results of another great American Muslim organization, the Institute for Social Policy Understanding, where they've done these deep dives into the differences between African-American voters or Arab or Desi voters or a large percentage of Muslim voters in the U.S. that even though they come from you know places of Arab or South Asian nationalities, they actually identify as white in surveys. There's a lot to unpack there. So I would just first state that in polling, we have seen that African-American Muslims typically are more liberal in voting, or if you want to say more likely to vote Democrat than maybe their Arab or South Asian peers. But even then, when CARES done polling of Arabs and South Asians, we find that still the majority of them are actually voting for Democratic Party candidates. Now, there's a higher ratio among Arabs and South Asians to vote for Republican Party candidates. And so we've done a deeper dive into those Muslim voters that vote Republican. And what we find is their most common responses for what policy issues are most impactful or important to them. They're always seeing issues related to taxes, health care, uh, the economy. These are really bottom line fiscal conservatives. Uh, when you look at issues of civil rights, Islamophobia, social justice, they're not off their Republican Muslim voters radar, but they're usually ranked like sixth or seventh or eighth. Now, when you flip it and you look at African-American voters that vote, uh, vote Democrat, 
or even Arab or South Asian voters that vote Democrat, their issues actually line up more. And the number one issue in this year's election cycle really had been issues related to civil rights and social justice, then followed by you know bread and butter issues like the economy, education, healthcare. I know a lot of Americans generally are concerned about the economy because of COVID and healthcare. But the differences in Republican voters, they were more against causes like universal health care, Medicaid for all. These Democratic voters support these issues more at a margin of 60 or 70 percent versus just like the 15 percent of Republican voters that seem to be for these and the majority that are against it. So there's a lot to unpack on what are the differences in the community by racial makeup and which party they support. But you know, when you look at the groups as they are and who they're voting for, when we know you're a Muslim and Democrat, you're more likely voting on a set series of issues, just like Republicans. One interesting polling result that we had was, and we did this after the first presidential debate at the end of October, we found 46% of Muslim respondents said they were socially progressive on issues, letting themselves identify whatever progressive means. And an equal number, 46% said they were fiscally conservative. What that means to me is while Muslims had an exodus out of the Republican Party in 2000 and it leveled off to just 20 like percent or so support, I actually think if the Republican Party changed its tune on some of the ways it approaches Muslims, talks about Muslims, how they impact the Muslim community, they could actually see a rise in support among Muslim voters. So I really, CARE's mission has opened to always encourage parties and candidates to try to appeal to voters because while we don't make the majority of the demographic in the U.S., we definitely have enough numbers in major cities and swing states to tip the results of elections. Now, you mentioned one really interesting thing. Do Arab, South Asian, or other legacy immigrant communities, do they support Trump more because he's perceived as an anti-war candidate? And you mentioned drone strikes. And it's not that Trump stopped America's, you know, drone strike policy. It's very alive and well. What happened was in 2019, back in April of that year, he canceled the drone strike civilian casualty report. So the U.S. media has been less likely to report on Trump's drone policy just because there are less numbers out there and it takes more to research it. For human rights and advocacy groups that are researching this, though, we actually just saw a shift in America's drone policy. So Trump is setting off less drone strikes in Pakistan, but he did shift it more so. We're doing more strikes in Somalia now than we did under the Obama administration combined. And we see that there were still just between like 2017 and 19, there were like 166 drone strikes in Yemen, possibly more. And in addition to that, we've also seen that the U.S., instead of doing direct strikes itself, we just subcontracted that to countries like Saudi Arabia, which is engaged in a conflict in Yemen right now. And Trump has liberalized our drone hardware sales to countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I knew the UAE recently made a $2 billion purchase of drones. So it's not that we need to necessarily, not as a country we actually need to, but perceive that we need to do more drone strikes in this countries. We're equipping our allies to do it for us. As for, you know, actually exiting theaters, a conflict, Trump is drawing down U.S. forces in Iraq 
and he's drawing them down in Afghanistan, and that in some corners of the Muslim community has been well-perceived, and in other corners, they're concerned that it could result in more civilian casualties if there isn't a, a stabilizing presence of troops in an area of conflict that we created in the first place. So, you know, don't break something and leave it just yet. Here, we would like to see a withdrawal of U.S. troops and also peace in the region at the same time. So we want to make sure if we broke it, we can empower people to fix it. The perception on the foreign policy issues is really interesting because, as you pointed out, I think the reports of the support to the allies or the arms deals with the allies, I mean, those are well reported. But the connections, I think, until you pointed out that hadn't really crossed my mind that the U.S. was outsourcing it. So I think that part of it is really interesting. I just wanted to pick up on one point that you made earlier in discussing the engagement with the Republican Party and how there are some natural fits for Muslims within social conservatism and even also economically in terms of tax cuts. Muslims, uh, like a lot of immigrant communities, tend to run small businesses and tax cuts tend to be the priority for, or low taxes tend to be the priority for those groups. And because Trump has taken and his administration has taken such a anti-Muslim, uh, the rhetoric has been so anti-Muslim, you can see how it'd be difficult for people to try to engage. And I think even for Muslim advocacy groups, it's been very difficult for them to engage with the White House. I've seen this policy in a number of countries. You know, Australia had a similar policy towards anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant. Canada had also gone through that in the pre-Trudeau era. So I'm interested now that he's gone and turning into the Biden era and there is now this opportunity for Muslims to re-engage with the White House and, and re-engage with the power interests. What are the priorities for CARE and for other Muslim groups over the next four years? I think that the Biden administration offers the promise of a listening ear to Muslim community concerns and is already taking some action on these concerns but you have to remember that the watch list in the United States, it increased under the Obama administration. Law enforcement programs that profile Muslims like countering violent extremism, now rebranded as targeted violent terrorism prevention, TVTP. These were created under the Obama administration and their legacies of that. Uh, and so it's not that, you know, Democrats just wiped the slate clean, but there's an opportunity for Biden where he's more open to listening to the concerns of Muslims. And I think that's why you saw such a high degree of Muslim support. And he's made some really good pledges to the Muslim community. So on day one, he's going to revoke the Muslim ban. He's promised to ensure that Muslims will serve at every level of his administration. Now it's our job on the community's part to ensure he actually hires and places Muslims, but at least we have a willing partner on the other side. You would have never heard anything like that from Trump. When it comes to his civil rights agenda, which is kind of cares bread and butter, uh, we're actually working our 100-day agenda that we are going to publicly roll out in the next two weeks. And there's a number of progressive civil rights issues that we want the Biden administration to tackle. And so we have a very wide range agenda that we're going to push for the Biden administration. We hope that he will listen to our community concerns. So after day one, when he repeals the Muslim ban, he keeps on moving forward with the policy issues and concerns of the Muslim community. And it just doesn't stop there.
Thank you for listening to Muslim in Moderation. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating. A new episode will be out monthly. For guest profiles, episodes and show notes, visit www.musliminmoderation.com.